When China Mieville's first novel, King Rat, was published in 1998, readers weren't prepared for what was to come. This surreal junglist manifesto brought a drum and bass beat to the world of London-loving magic realism. But when Perdido Street Station was published, the real lit quake began. In a novel boiling with invention and grotesquerie, readers found prose so musical, so dense, that it defied the very imaginations it set afire. His following novel, a standalone sequel set in the world of Boz Log, The Scar, mapped an inner landscape every bit as challenging as the outer landscape and was nominated for a Hugo and World Fantasy Award. His latest novel is Iron Council, and it returns to the world of Boz Log with a tale of overt politics, war without reason, and the power of any single human being. It's no surprise that political machinations are a central theme in Iron Council. Mieville has a Ph.D. in international relations, made a bid for Parliament in 2001, running for MP of his district with the Socialist Alliance Party, and was a featured speaker at the Marxism 2003 conference. Welcome to Fine Print, China. Thanks very much for having me on. China, tell us a little bit about your origins as a writer. What brought you to write fiction and fantasy fiction in particular? Um, it's it's. It's pretty much the same story you hear from most uh, you know, writers of science fiction, fantasy, and horrors. I, I like to write what I grew up reading and and the kind of books that I that I love to read. Um, as a as a as a kid, I, I mostly read, uh, you know, um, speculative fiction in all its various all its various um, forms. And as I got older, I, I I kind of branched out as a reader and read much more widely as well as just the the, the genre. But as a writer, I was never able to sustain interest in something that didn't have monsters in it. Um, so I, you know, I'm I'm in this business for the monsters. I I I I, I write books um, that have the kind of grotesquery and strangeness and the weird, um, which was what kind of got me interested in this field in the first place. Um, I knew I wanted to do this um, since I was, well, certainly sort of twelve, thirteen, and and just you know wrote short stories and. And then finally wrote my first novel when I was in my early 20s, and it, it kind of snowballed from there. Tell us a little bit about King Rat. Well, King Rat, my first book, um, was written very much of its time. I mean, you know, in London in the early to mid-90s, there was this musical phenomenon, drum and bass, jungle music, which was um, which was extremely um, important and popular and was a kind of homegrown um, London British uh, dance music and it was it was something that had quite a big cultural impact and I was really interested in it um, and I wanted to write a novel that kind of took it seriously as an art form the that music um, but that was also the kind of supernatural thriller that that I like to read um, and so it kind of developed from there um, King Rat himself, who's one of the main characters of the book, who's kind of an well, an animal spirit, um, was um, he he was a, a character from children's pantomimes and plays that I'd seen when I was a little tiny kid, a kind of comic villain. But he'd really terrified me. He'd been something I, I'd, I'd been really kind of freaked out by, and had never kind of left my my head. And I'd always drawn comics involving him and so on, and so. Uh, I, I just ended up sort of focusing on him and he was a minor character in the first when I first started writing it but he kind of grew and grew and grew to, to, to take over the book. Another major character in that book is the city of London itself. Mm. Tell us about your love of the urban, the dense, the dank, the unky urban. Well, London London's one of those cities which for some reason um, 
refracts very very well through fiction um and there's a whole tradition of like london fiction and you know uh michael moorcock and dickens and ian sinclair and thomas de quincey and neil gaiman i mean you know there's a very long list of writers who who write a kind of underground london um uh for some reason that kind of fictional representation of london is 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 very very intense um and i see the two strands that i wanted to do with king rat was one was the music and one was london um and i really wanted to write a classic london novel you know you know just just a novel that treated london very very seriously not just as a setting but as a kind of well as a character um and um yeah i can't really take credit for doing anything radically new there i mean i, I i'm glad it i hope it went well and i was really pleased with it but um as I say, there is quite a tradition of treating London that way. It's just a, a a fascinating city because its size, the way it sprawls, its history, the way history butts up right close to really new things. It's, um, well, <laughs> I'm a big fan. Well, your history of this novel also butts up close to all these other London novels. When you started writing this novel, did you have those novels in mind? Did you think about those? Had you read recently read them? Some of them. I mean, I'd always been interested in that that tradition of writing. I mean, Ian Sinclair is a British writer who, you know, is very important in, in my in my fiction. Um, uh, there, there, there's a book called The Borables um, by a, a British writer, Michael de Larabiti, um, a children's book, but a very <laughs> dark children's book, which has the same kind of um, dissident relationship to London, I suppose. Um, and I was conscious of all of these as as kind of the shoulders on which I was standing, um, you know. Um, so I, I hope it doesn't end up becoming pastiche, but I was certainly very conscious of writing as part of a sort of tradition, yeah. The City of London also pops up in a transfigured manner in Perdido Street Station, doesn't it? Yeah, the the city of New Crobazon, which is the, you know, the setting of, of Perdido Street Station, is very much a kind of as you say a sort of uh, transmogrified london you know it it's 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 dickens's london um messed about with and you know and put through the mill and uh, you know ground up and smudged with oil and all that kind of things but i mean it's not the only city there i mean new crobazon is a, is a composite of of lots of cities that i'm a big fan of so the largest part obviously is london but there's also it has New York in it, it has Havana in it, it has Cairo in it, it has, uh, you know, any city I go to that, I, that I'm interested in, I just steal something from. Tell us a little bit about your love of monsters. Well, there's not much to tell, really. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, Tolkien apparently once said that he, he wrote The Lord of the Rings because all, you know, what he really wanted to do was invent an elvish language, but that publishers wouldn't publish an elvish language so he had to write this pesky novel in which to to sort of smuggle the language and sometimes I feel a bit like that about monsters you know my big draw is the monsters I just like bestiaries I like uh you know collections of 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 weird invented creatures um uh, but I'm not you know I'm not going to get that published so you know I, I I kind of put them into a into a story um one of the one of the paradoxes about as New Crobazon and the New Crobazon books, you know, they, they've done well and people have been really nice, you know, kind about them and, and I've got great good reviews and so on, is that there is, in fact, increasing interest in just the idea of just a bestiary uh, or the encyclopedia. So one of these days, I fully intend 
to you know write and illustrate the the bass lag bestiary which would just be a an excuse for me to just you know really let rip on all the monsters i've been thinking about for years um you know monster movies from the you know classic 40s and 50s b movies through to you know modern stuff uh you know monster manuals from things like dungeons and dragons uh medieval bestiaries i i just i just really groove on monsters and i always have one of the things i like about your monsters is they aren't just objects of horror that are man-eating machines they're characters well i mean some are characters some are animals um but not animals in the sense of of you know sort of incomprehensible vehicles for evil i mean literally animals like a lion is an animal i i don't want the monstrous in my world is not a uh, a synonym for kind of unfathomable evil at all um the the grotesquery is what i'm interested in i'm not interested in the moralizing that sometimes goes along with monsters you know the evil dragon and the good prince i i'm not particularly interested in that so in the book in in all the books you know some some of the monsters are uh as you say they're characters who we can get inside their heads other monsters uh, have completely opaque motivations i'm thinking about the weaver which is a kind of giant spider um a sort of philosophical surrealist giant spider you can't possibly get inside its head um but that doesn't mean it's evil um and then some of them are are animals um like the slake moths from the first of the series, Perdido Street Station, um, you know, they, they, they do a huge amount of damage, but they're not evil. They're not devils. They, they're just predatory animals. Um, because I want to kind of, uh, as I say, get away from this kind of moralistic notion that the, the monster is a kind of symbol for, you know, all that is bad. Um, because that kind, of, that kind of moralism just doesn't interest me. Your novels include a lot of scenes that are not just filled with monsters, but are also surreal. I'd like you to talk about your sense of the surreal and the grotesque and how you evoke that with your language. There are various different traditions in in fantastic literature and fantastic art, and the traditions that I've always been most interested in are, as you say, those of surrealism, um, decadence, the Baroque, the Gothic, um, rather than those of the kind of um, sort of uh, Victorian fairy tale. Um, you know, if I like fairy tales, I tend to like, you know, the older versions of the fairy tales, which are somewhat more bloody. Um, I And that, that kind of, as I say, that kind of Baroque surreal thing um, seems to me most interesting because it's the most genuinely fantastic in the sense that, it does not obey any rules. It, at its best, kind of defeats cliche. It's it, it's a kind of constant process of sort of radical um, alienation and um, uh, uh, a kind of creates a kind of constant aesthetic culture shock in the reader or the or the viewer. And I really I'm really really interested in that. Um, um, and one of the one of the ways I like to try and sort of explore that is through the language as well as through the story that some sometimes people writers think of language as essentially a kind of clear pane of glass through which you see the story um and you know there's some great work done on that basis um but 
it can also, at its worst, become a rather kind of plodding relationship to language itself. I'm more interested in the idea of language not as a uh, not a, not as a clear pane of glass, but as a, you know, like a stained glass window. So there's something behind it, and there's also the the medium itself, which is also um, hopefully trying to do something to the reader. I'm interested in at the high end kind of uh, literary experimentation, um, and at the low end. Uh, I mean, I use these terms in inverted commas, at the low end, the sort of kind of pulp poetry of someone like H.P. Lovecraft, who uses language with a kind of incredible, rich, over overwrought uh, sort of focus on the sounds of words, the cadence of words, sometimes, sometimes almost unreadable, but always very interesting in terms of the language he's using. Um, and I just, I just like sort of trying to take the language seriously as a as more than just a medium for the content, but as an end in itself, the cadence of words, um, the structure of sentences, um, the way sentences relate to each other, all that kind of thing. You always run the risk of becoming obscurantist and you know putting people off and being being difficult. But at the same time, I think in the long run it's more interesting than um, than 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 a kind of constant literal. Uh, expositionary style, if you like. Now, you talked about creating a sort of cultural shockwave in Mm. the reader, and you do that very successfully. What I'd like to know is, as you're writing, have you already mapped out the world and the grotesquerie that you create with this language? How much of a part does the language play in the creation of the world itself? I, I do tend to map the world quite vigorously and, and, and rigorously before I, I write the story. I mean, it tends to be a story set in a world I've, I've been in, inventing um, rather than the invention of the world through the story. Um, and there are exceptions to that, and there are times when I change the parameters as I'm doing the writing. But um, as I say, uh, what I'm very interested in is is culture shock. I'm very interested in trying to create that sense of culture shock in the reader um i, I want to try and create a sense as if the reader has got on the wrong airplane and gets off in a in an airport that they're not expecting and, and just spend some time just really not being able to make sense of it but you know being kind of assaulted by all these images and so on um and i think part of the best way to do that is to have quite a strong sense of the world but then not to explain it so in most cases, I know what's going on, but it would be almost kind of too plodding to actually just explain to the reader what's going on. Um, and um, that technique for kind of pointing at stuff that's just beyond the page, but then not actually bringing it into the page, um, from buildings to history to creatures to anything, uh, I think is can be a quite a successful technique for that kind of culture shock. And you can also do that with a language like I use a lot of neologisms. I use a lot of words that I invent, which are generally intended to sound half familiar. So I use words that, you know, have some relationship to real language. They're not just completely random sets of consonants and vowels, but which are like twisted enough that you kind of half recognize them. That's the attempt to create a sort of culture shock that brings you in but pushes you away at the same time. You're very successful with your neologisms. Oh, thank they're, you very much. They're, they're, they're beautiful. And that brings to mind another point, that one of the pleasures of reading your books is that you manage to make all the words pronounceable. <laughs> 
well, most of them, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't promise I'll always do that. But I mean, generally, uh, you know, the, the, the creatures and the aliens in, in my world and the alien cultures are all people I want the reader to be able to get inside their head. So it's difficult to empathize with someone whose, whose name is unsayable. Could you talk a little bit about the plotting in your fantasies? Fantasies have a, a structure, or we've come to expect a certain kind of structure from fantasies, and we don't find it in yours. When I wrote Perdido Street Station, I quite... It was as it was as much to do with the setting as it was to do with anything else, and the plot is a tremendously simple plot um, in Perdido Street Station. The plot is just, um, you know, monsters run riot. It's what in in the film Aliens they call a bug hunt. You know, it's just it's just you know monsters chase catch find. Very very simple plot because the main point was the um, was the setting in in some ways. With the scar, that changed a lot because, as you say, there is a certain traditional fantasy plot shape, narrative arc, um, which is basically, you know, the quest fantasy, the, you know, uh, looking for the magical object or so on. Um, and, of course, there's plenty of fantasy that doesn't have that shape, but that tends to be the cliche. And what I wanted to do with the scar was to have something which <sighs> pretended to have that shape, but then constantly undermined itself. So it, 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 it looks at first glance, I think, like a quest fantasy. It is, you know, there is something very, very far away that people are, you know, trying very hard to get to and, you know, to reach because lots of magic and so on, crudely. But that in the, in the development of the plot, it undercuts itself as much as it offers it out. Um, so that was a book in which I was very, very conscious of the plotting and of the sense of... Um, of you know the shape of the narrative and trying to have something which had its own uh integrity but also which referred to the classic shape of fantasy with a kind of somewhat critical eye um and then in iron council again in in certain ways iron council is quite a traditional plot i mean in certain ways iron council is is there and back again like the hobbit you know i mean in certain ways but hopefully i mean i won't go into detail because it would give things away but hopefully it's it it has a certain sort of skewed enough take that it doesn't read as as uh you know sort of um as as tremendously cliched you know let's talk about the classics since you brought them up the typical fantasy classic is considered to be tolkien but to my mind you don't take after Tolkien very much. No, well, I mean, I've talked quite a lot about Tolkien in various um, interviews and so on, and I, you know, I mean, my 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 thoughts on his work is kind kind of on record. I mean, I'm mm. basically I'm not a huge fan of Tolkien. I find his his work. I don't like his use of language, which I find, um, uh, sort of at, at best kind of faux epic, and at worst <clears throat> a kind of um, a very kind of. Uh, plodding sort of fairy tale kind of faux fairy tale register i'm not a big fan of his moralism i'm not i don't find his characters convincing um you know all of which said there are certain things that tolkien did very very importantly and the most important one for me was treating the secondary world that he invented with a kind of you know you know 
absolute precise respect and taking that project of world creation very seriously. And I think anyone who works in fantasy has to acknowledge that we're all Tolkien's children, whether we like it or not. Um, and I also think that there's a there's a danger in kind of a kind of cheap radical chic in just kind of you know running around dissing Tolkien all the time. And I've 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 done my Tolkien dissing. So anyone who wants <laughs> to you know read all my Tolkien dissing, it's all online. But I'm I, I feel I feel it's just getting a bit sort of um, undignified and disrespectful now. Certainly in terms of influences, I feel more directly influenced by. Writers like Mervyn Peake, sure. um, Gormenghast is yeah, beautiful. Gormenghast and and you know writers who 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 precede Tolkien like um, uh, Fritz Lieber um, and uh, and obviously the Weird Tales writers like Clark Ashton Smith and H. P. Lovecraft. That kind of very baroque, fantastic world, um, and even in a funny way, um, you know the Conan stories have a kind of I mean. Not that <laughs> there are many, many problems with the Conan stories, but they have a kind of sort of uh, a sort of muscular vigor that I find lacking in 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 Tolkien. Um, uh, similarly, with certain kind of um, Edgar Rice Burroughs. So yes, Tolkien is someone who you can't avoid in fantasy, and you might as well just acknowledge that and try and you know deal with that gracefully. But um, he's not by any means a huge direct influence on me. I don't think. I wanted to talk to you a bit about the politics of genre fiction. Mm. There's lots of literary genres and subgenres, and speculative fiction seems to be good at popping up subgenres and bringing them forth as if they shall conquer all. <laughs> you know, there's there's always these waves of movements and moments and all this, and you know. Science fiction, speculative fiction, whatever you want to call it, SF, fantasy, horror, has a essentially a kind of um, a, a relationship to mainstream literary fiction, um, in inverted commas, uh, of kind of, I think, sort of disgruntled inferiority. I mean, you know, we get, you know, we don't get, on the whole, you know, we don't, you know, we don't win the, the literary prizes. We don't... Um, get taken tremendously seriously by literary editors and so on having said all of which you know science fiction is a you know that's a complaint we've had for years and years and years i kind of think to some extent we should shut up about it not that it's not true and not that it's not annoying but we all know so let's let's move on and also certainly in britain and my sense is perhaps here um it's not so true anymore i mean no, science fiction writers aren't winning the Booker Prize, but they are getting reviewed in the mainstream papers much more than they used to. They're getting reviewed on 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 the radio. They're getting interviewed on the radio. You know, so I mean, I I for example have absolutely no complaints about how how many reviews and the way I've been reviewed in the mainstream press in Britain, in Britain or the states. Um, and although of course there are those people that are going to denigrate genre fiction. I think our best response is to just sort of, um, is to, you know, continue to write the best fiction we can. Quite often when science fiction people are talking about, um, are kind of defending the genre, they, they, they refer to Sturgeon's Law from, you know, Theodore Sturgeon, which is, you know, yes, 90% of science fiction is crap, but 90% of everything is crap, as a way of sort of saying the denigration of SF 
is unfair. And I always think that that's true, but we also need to turn it back round and say, you know, what we're forgetting is that just because 90% of everything is rubbish doesn't mean that it's okay that 90% of science fiction is rubbish. You know, 90% of what gets put out in our field is rubbish, and that's not good enough. Um, and then, you know, as you say, there's all these kind of subgenres. There's the cyberpunk and there's the new worlds um, and, and, and so on, uh, steampunk. Um, I think movements are fun. I think they're interesting. I think they're fun. I like manifestos. I like you know literary debates i like literary arguments but i think you have to take it with a big pinch of salt you know um and some of these movements mean a lot more to me than others i feel very much like a child of the new wave the, the science fiction writing of the early 70s um i don't feel so much like a child of cyberpunk although i admire some of the writers very much um but you know these are always going to be at best fuzzy sets there's going to be an awful lot of gray areas you know and, and if you take them more seriously than that then you're not going to be able to make sense of what's being written now i'd like to take this back and talk more about your new novel iron council it's one of the most overtly political fantasy novels i've ever read but then it's easy to forget that fantasy has always been a political genre from the get-go from the iliad and the odyssey Particularly in the last 150 years, you know, the fantastic in general has often been turned to political uses. And you think of people like William Morris uh, and you think of, you know, Samuel Butler's Erewhon. Um, and you can get into debates as to whether this is science fiction or fantasy, but the, fan the fantastic as a field. Right back to Gulliver's Travels, in which the fantastic is used for socially, politically satirical purposes. Um I wanted, there was a lot of politics embedded in Perdido Street Station and the Scar, and I wanted to write a book set in this world that I really love and I've spent a lot of time developing and inventing that took those politics and extrapolated them out and tried to, you know, really kind of engage with them and tried to be, you know, as you say, a political fantasy novel. Um, but I always say this to people, it's also very important that it's, it's a novel and if you're not interested in the politics this book has you know i think <laughs> i hope you know really cool monsters and it has you know gunfights and it has you know war scenes and it has you know exciting chases and all that stuff i mean it you know i come out of pulp fiction i'm a you know a modern pulp writer and if there's not you know cliffhangers and exciting stuff to make people turn the pages then it's a bad novel but if you are interested then I've tried to put a kind of political texture to the novel. And the narrative itself, as you say, to some extent, unlike the previous two novels, is a narrative about political events. Um, and, and, and for anyone who is interested in my politics or the kind of politics I'm interested in, there's the examination of certain themes of grassroots history and, and exploitation and all that kind of stuff is in there. So I try to have my cake and eat it. I try to write, you know, good rip-roaring pulp fiction that is also I investigating the kind of themes I'm interested in, which tend to be political themes. You also have some wonderful characters in there. There's a great love triangle. with, <laughs> And it's most unusual and also takes on some political overtones. Yeah, I, I presume you're talking about sexuality. Right. Um, yeah. I think that's an interesting point of this novel, and I think it's well, it's so well handled because it doesn't jump up, it doesn't announce itself. It just happens as a result of the characters you've created. 
Well, thank you very much. I mean, I essentially one of the main characters in this book is gay. Um, and he's gay partly because for the purposes of the novel, I wanted him to have a very particular kind of intense relationship with with another character who was who was male and who I wanted to be male and and so I it it was simply a very you know simple and easy way of doing that but of course once you do that then you raise a lot of you know issues and issues of sexuality and issues of politics and so on and so I was you know very sort of happy to try and deal with those but I'm glad that you don't think it jumps out at you because I don't want this to become an issue novel you know it's not a novel about homosexuality or homophobia it's a novel which has a main character who is a gay man and that's a different that's a different thing i remember when the scar was finished i was quite pleased because few people said to me oh you know it's really interesting that you've written you know the main the protagonist is a woman and i was glad about that because um i wanted i didn't want it to be a book you know about women it was a book the protagonist of which was a woman and of course that does raise certain issues and I didn't want to shy away from those issues but that it wasn't like a kind of you know a pamphlet on you know on on these issues it wasn't like a kind of manifesto and similarly with this so the sexuality issue is very important and recurs throughout the book in various different ways Um, but it's the book is not a kind of you know, thinly veiled article on, on sexuality. No, not at all. Um, one of the things it is, though, in part, is a Western. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Now, tell me, what kind? did you do much reading, background reading on Westerns before you wrote this? Yeah, I did, because I think it's really important if you're going to write a book that relates to a tradition of fiction, I think it's really important to, well, basically, to show respect for that tradition, and the first way you show respect for it is by reading it and learning about it. One of the, parenthetically, one of the things that annoys me when uh, mainstream writers write science fiction is quite often they do so without having read any of the genre. Um, um, and I think of books like Paul Theroux's um, Ozone, uh, which is you know not a good book. And part of the reason it's not a good book is because he's trying to write a science fiction novel while distancing himself from the genre, not knowing anything about it and not, you know, reading any of it. That was my impression anyway. So having decided that I wanted to write a Western, you know, a Gothic Western with gunslingers, bounty hunters, you know, men on horseback, wide open plains, you know, two bit one sheriff towns, gamblers, all that stuff. I, I went and read quite a lot of Westerns, you know, particularly the two that feature in the book, that loom in the book, is from the traditional end, Zane Grey was very influential, his depiction of landscape in particular. And from the kind of revisionist end, Cormac McCarthy, um, you know, who's the way he relates his language to the to, to the to the Western sort of the, the sort of epic landscape is is something that was very influential. So yeah, I mean I loved Western films growing up and um and so I was reading, you know, Frank Spearman and, and, and various other Western things. Yeah, I, I tried to steep myself in that tradition. Now, as a writer, I want you to talk about, actually, your politics, because they really inform this. And I wanted to set up your background. You have a Ph.D. in international relations. Tell us a little bit about your politics, and then we'll bring back into the writing. Well, I'm... Um, 
I'm a I'm a progressive. I'm a I'm I'm a socialist, which is a, is a word that you know people in the states often don't you know use about themselves. But uh, although I know many who do, um, but um, I'm I'm on the left, um, uh, and I've been politically active for um, some years, and and so it it informs my worldview and very much, and therefore informs my fiction very much, um, and. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what that would mean to be a socialist. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and confusion. You know, you know that that you know people say go back to Russia or whatever. You know, I I I never had any truck for the Eastern Bloc Stalinism. I I didn't then. I don't now. You know, um, I am not a fan of North Korea. You know, it's a different kind of politics. You know, um, but that kind of basically, uh, you know, sort of politics that is you know very skeptical of of capitalism and and uh the sort of that that way of organizing society is is something that in various forms has been a big part of my life for well for most of my life i've been politically active for a long time socialism actually has a, a fairly significant history even in the united states oh, which has I mean, been smashed lately and erased Eugene Debs, you right. know great hero and uh you know that you know i i know a great number of american socialists and so on so i'm not saying it's not there but i'm saying you know quite often i mean what i tend to find happens in the u.s quite a lot is people who don't necessarily come from a political tradition think you know if i say i'm a socialist they they think that's really really strange or mad or whatever and then when, when we actually discuss about what i what i think they agree with me on most of it, you know. And I'm thinking, yeah, you're a socialist too. You just didn't know, you know. Well, tell me, what do you think? Oh, well, you know, it's all the things you would expect, you know. I mean, uh, I, you know, I mean, all the all the obvious issues of, you know, racism and homophobia and sexism and so on are, you know, issues of kind of oppression are, you know, very important to to me and the people I work with. You know, we try and stand against those wherever we can um and we're you know we try and be very active in the the movement that it's called you know global justice anti-capitalism whatever you know the 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 movement that really kicked off in seattle in 1999 you know we see as you know very i see as a very very important sort of corrective to the uh the constant refrain that there is no alternative and that you know the the free market the word free there i think should have inverted commas around it the the free market system is the only one we can have and i think that the slogan another world is possible which is used a lot is a is a wonderful slogan because one of the things that distresses me about politics at the moment is that it's the the kind of collapse of any sense of an alternative you know that uh, and i think that that was something that thatcherism and reaganism was was very keen on was stressing there is no alternative as thatcher once said and i think what's been happening increasingly over the last few years is people are saying well we insist on there being an alternative we will not accept this agenda um and obviously at the moment what that means is you know opposing the war you know and 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 the the occupation um uh, in in iraq um so this is something i've been you know, like like millions of other people, very kind of concerned about and 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 involved with, in the last year and so, um, but you know, I mean, I could go on about this this sort of thing for for hours, but um, it's it's basically an insistence that there are alternative ways of organising the world, and that 
rather than putting profit before all else, it would be nice to put people before all else for a change. And putting people before all else comes out in your fiction as well. You talked about racism and sexism. In Boz Log, you have speciesism. Mm, yeah. And, and you do that. Well, could you talk about your fictional creation? Well, one of the things that happens in, in a lot of fantasy, um, with plenty of honorable exceptions, but with a lot of fantasy, species is more or less uh, a code for race in our world so that you see it you see it in like star wars and you see it in uh in, in tolkien and you see it in a lot of uh, writing that you know um uh you know like like for, for, you know in in star wars for example i in in episode four in, in episode one you know in the phantom menace i think you know the trade federation were <laughs> to me were fairly fairly thinly veiled um asians um in a way that I thought was really problematic. I had all sorts of issues with that. Um, and and the interesting thing about um, that depiction of, of of species as race, uh, oh, it's Star Trek is another example where you have, you know, um, I mean, the, I don't know how they got away with the Ferengi. I really don't, because I would have thought, you know, the Anti-Defamation League would have been onto them. But anyway, that's a whole other issue. Um, the, the <laughs> I, I think... Um, the problem with that depiction is that in, in a lot of those worlds, race becomes defining. So that, you know, in, in a lot of traditional fantasy and science fiction, if you are of a certain race, you know, you really do have a certain set of behavioral, you know, patterns and you really are a certain type of person. I mean, to put it crudely, in Middle Earth, orcs are <laughs> they really are bad you know and elves you know they may be quite arrogant but they really are on the whole good you know um one of the problems with that is that this essentially this is saying this is a world in which racism is true you know the whole point of racism is that you say people of a certain race are like this this is what they are and in these fantasy and science fiction worlds that's true they really are like that and that to me is very problematic um because it kind of accepts that the, the 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 logic of racism what i wanted to do in 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 bass lag was to say racism is real but it's real just like it is in the real world which is that it's real but it's full of crap um and so in my world i you know i depict these races with lots of kind of cultural differences and so on and and there's a lot of a, there's a lot of oppression and a lot of prejudice against these races but that's exactly what it is. It's oppression and prejudice, not a kind of logical response to real differences on the whole. Um, and that, that was that was quite important to me. So so I, I like to try and, you know, investigate racism as a social phenomenon rather than race as a social phenomenon. One of the other things I thought was absolutely fascinating in Iron Council was the way you discuss and portray the politics of change. And you portray it through a series of levels I found really interesting. There is change by artists, which you have as the flexible puppet theater, bringing back those terrifying puppet theaters of your youth. <laughs> um, you have change by reasoned discourse, which is the runagate rampant set. Mm. You have change by underground violent revolution, which often comes as a result of personal motivations. Mm. You have change by war and invasion. You have change by dictatorship. And, of course, our favorite, always present, change by entropy. Hmm. 
could you tell us about how you set that up and how you can brought up about those levels in the novel? Well, I mean, the, of course, the thing is that there's no there's no hard and fast distinctions between those levels. So, you know, uh, you know, a, a radical group, for example, you know, may be motivated partly by uh, recent discourse, partly by personal motives of revenge, and partly by the entropy of an organization that has always existed to this end, so doesn't have anything else to do. You know, I mean, it, the, 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 there's all these gray areas. Um, um, and, and for me, in a way, the most interesting thing is you know, change at a kind of societal level, at a grand level, um, change which is a result of contradictions that were always embedded in a seemingly total whole. In fact, it was kind of eating itself apart with, with contradictions in its very middle, and that eventually those contradictions and those kind of tensions and so on uh, will kind of spill over into a, into, a, into a change at a kind of societal level. And what I'm looking at with all those different levels that you're talking about is almost more like snapshots at that overall phenomena phenomenon at at various uh various places in the in the social chain if you like so i see them as much more related than sort of distinct phenomena um but that you know i'm, I'm kind of choosing to focus in on one at a time so for example you talk about artists the change in the the puppet theaters in the book that you're talking about is to me very much you know a result of and part of the same process of the upheaval that you see in some of the the radical newspapers which is itself very much part of the upheaval that you see in the actions of all the all the all the citizens on the ground so they are more related but i'm just kind of taking a look at different different parts it's like a core sample <laughs> yeah that's a nice a nice metaphor could you talk a little bit about the politics of art both in your own art and in the art that is in your books? Um, well, I get very anxious at the idea of art as a kind of direct political tool. I think that's a really bad idea. Um, and I think the best artists, and, and ironically the best, well, not ironically, but, you know, the best political artists have known that. So the best political artists, are, you, know, are, are, you know, are often people like... Um, you know the the, the French surrealist um, Benjamin Perret, who, you know, had no truck for the kind of finger wagging, you know, sort of agitprop approach to to political art. Um, I think that we have to kind of have a have a broader conception of political art than than something which is really kind of simply and obviously about political themes. You know, surrealism for me. Uh, it, you know, you look at a picture, it may look like a representation of a dream, but it may be highly political because it's challenging, you know, the status quo in, you know, what has previously been considered acceptable art. It's challenging the status quo in the idea of a kind of, you know, simple mental model. It's bringing out all of our subconscious, all that kind of thing. So I think you have to have a kind of uh, a sort of nuanced idea of, of what political art can be. Um, and I also think you know, I don't judge art by the politics of the creator. You know, plenty of my very, very favourite books are by people whose politics I, I disagree with profoundly. And and I know that there are people that like my books who would not agree with a word I say politically. Um, and I think that's very important because if you want to write political art, then if it's bad art, it's bad politics. So you have to start as a as a writer or as an artist by saying, you know, I want to create the best art I can do. 
And if I also want to put some politics in there, that's fine. But if it fails as art, then it's, if so facto, going to fail as politics. Um, all of which said, <laughs> Iron Council is a fairly obviously and overtly political book because I really wanted to do one. I really wanted to, to write one political book that was very overt and dealing with political themes. And I may, I may do more, I don't know, but this was a story I'd a story that develops out of political ideas and I'd really, really wanted to do it. But it's not a work of agitprop. You know, if I want to try and convince somebody of something political, I'll write an article or I'll have a debate with them. What I want to do in this book is write a really exciting, enthralling novel. Um, but yes, it happens to be a novel with a lot of politics in it. And without the politics, it wouldn't be a novel. You talk about the forms of war in this book quite a bit. War as disasters attack from without, attack from within, and attacks that may not actually be attacks. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about your thoughts as you were developing these different concepts? Well, mostly I was interested in the way um, the way war often kind of bleeds into upheaval internally. I mean, you look at the First World War, for example, you know, in the first year or two of the First World War, there's a huge upsurge of kind of nationalism and, and jingoism and everyone's, you know, rah-rah for the war. And then within, like, two years, you're talking about the war without has has very precisely become the war within. And in places like Russia, you know, in a very, you know, overt way, much of that fervor has become sort of, you know, sort of rechanneled into a kind of insurrection but but across europe you know you had you know huge social upheaval huge sort of you know radical questioning of 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 the wisdom of the day that that came directly out of that kind of external war so i think i was very interested in the way and you know to a certain extent you see the same thing here i mean you see you know what's been going on with iraq you know all of the you know many people who were very sure about the war in the early days, they haven't lost any of their fervor, but it's taken a very different direction. And they're now very unsure about the war, quite rightly, in, in my opinion. Um, so I was interested in the way, you know, war, as you say, has very many levels. And one of the levels is that it bleeds quite directly into, into you know, at, at the most extreme civil war. Um, but at the very least, a kind of questioning, a social upheaval, War is very destabilizing at all levels. And, un, you know, unfortunately for those that want to wage war, war externally doesn't have a, a hard membrane with war internally. And it, it kind of, you know, the, the, the backwash of war is social upheaval. Um, and, and that happens throughout history. One of the things you do well in this and all your novels is to deploy technology and deploy magic as technology. Uh, you seem to have just have fun with it in every mm. novel, and it's really fun for the readers oh, to good. see what you're going to do with each time. Uh, could you talk about that both across the scope of your novels, really? Well, my main, my main issue is to try and make the, the technology plausible. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be realistic, and in fact it's wildly unrealistic, but it does have to be plausible. Um, and one of the things that I like doing is, is weird science. So magic in my world is a science, but it's a very weird science, you know. And I like, in each of the three books set in Bas Lag, I've taken a different kind of subfield of weird science 
and used it quite a lot in the book. So that in the first book, it's what was called crisis energy. In the second book, it's what was called possibility mining, which is vaguely related to quantum theory. And in the third book, in this book, um, it's um, uh, what I call somatogy, which is golems, the creation of golems. Um, And in each case, I, I, I just really like the shape of this weird science. I just like inventing, you know, kooky, mad stuff that, you know, for each of these techniques. I also like treating them seriously as if they were sciences so that they they can't just be used to do anything. They have rigorous rules just like physics and biology and chemistry, but they happen to be different rules. Um, um, but, you know, but the people that use these techniques in the books are scientists. They're just different kinds of scientists. And the third thing is that with magic and and weird science, what you can do is you can examine metaphors of human behavior and the social world. Um, so with crisis energy, partly I was interested in questions of social tension and social crisis, and I kind of literalized that into into the depiction of, of, of this this particular kind of energy. And with golems, I was I was interested in the idea of human intervention in the world and the golem, the kind of artificial person as a sort of a very vivid metaphor for that, so I wanted to kind of explore that. Your novels also have an, a great interest in the media <laughs> that I find really fascinating, and the media is always very low-tech, but it's very effective. Well, there's a big... Tra- this is partly because of the research in kind of Victoriana that I did for the books, you know, and there's a big tradition in, um, you know, the kind of the underground newspaper, the... Uh, you know the the development of the newspaper is something that interests me a lot you know and also kind of alternative media like the way gangs and political people use graffiti as a way of passing messages to each other or or hand signals or that kind of thing so I'm interested in you know uh, in those you know the the media as a as a disseminator of information um, both for <laughs> for truth and lies and in its various forms yeah um but you're right it's not really a mass media i mean the closest it gets is is the newspaper which is which which are very very important in these books the n- newspapers are highly important um but there's no there's no internet there's no cable tv in new on yet not yet could you tell us what to expect from you in your next novel have you started it yet i have started it um and I'm going to be very superstitious and not really say much about it because I, I don't like talking about books that aren't... I don't Talking about things that aren't yet written seems to me like just asking for a disaster. So, uh, um, But what I will say is that for this book and probably the next one as well, I'm moving away from New Crobazon. It's not They're not set in Baslag because I want, to, I want to kind of create a bit of a buffer. Perdido Street Station, The Scar and Iron Council... Ha- work together they are a, it, you know they're, they're standalones but they do relate to each other and I wanted to kind of stop there for a bit and I'll probably come back to New Crobazon and Bass Lag in, uh, in, in two or three novels time so the next one or two will be very different oh well that sounds interesting we've been speaking with China Mieville his latest novel is Iron Council thanks for talking China thanks for having me on <laughs>